0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to our second event today, marking five years since the creation of the Department of International Trade. My name is Maddie Timurjack and I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government. This morning, we discussed what it took to set up the department and how successful it has been in delivering the government's trade policy. But now we're going to turn to Parliament. Although the government alone has responsibility for negotiating, signing and ratifying treaties, Parliament is there to scrutinise the government's actions and in some cases will be required to legislate to implement those treaties. The domestic focus of the last few years has been on the UK's negotiations with the EU and much of the 2017-19 Parliament focus on ensuring there would be opportunities to, sc- to scrutinise whatever agreement was reached. But other treaties have not received the same attention and when government has a majority in the Commons does that make scrutiny meaningless? With me to discuss the current arrangements for parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals and treaties and whether they are sufficient is Mark Garnier, Conservative MP for Wire Forest, currently a member of the House of Commons International Trade Committee. And he was Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the Department of International Trade from 2016 to 2018. I'm also joined by Jill Barrett, Associate Member of Six Pump Court, International Law Consultant, and former Foreign Office Legal Advisor. I'm also joined by Professor Holger Hestermeyer, Professor of International and EU Law at King's College London. And last and by no means least, I'm joined by Alex Horn, Councillor Hackett and Dabs. LLP and special advisor to the House of Lords International Agreements Committee. Now, before we get stuck into the conversation, a bit of housekeeping. This event is on the record and a video and sound recording will be available within 24 hours on our website. My colleague is live tweeting the event from at IFG events, but please do tweet along with her using the hashtag IFG trade. Please do also send in your questions throughout the event using the Q&A function on your screen. If someone else has asked a question that you also want to ask, then do upvote it so that I know it's popular. And I will try and get through as many of them as possible. So with that all to one side, I would like to come to you, Alex, first. Now, you've worked in Parliament for quite a long time and you've been an advisor in the House of Lords, in particular for the last few years, advising on treaty scrutiny. I mean, you know, we're talking about scrutiny today, but I think we want to start really by saying why why does scrutiny matter? Why should we care about this?
1: Sure, thank you, Maddie, and thank you for having me at the, this event. Um, why scrutiny? That's a very big question, uh, and I think um, there's obviously the overarching reason why, why scrutiny. Well, you're meant to get accountability. You're meant to get better decision making um you're meant to get government explaining uh what it's doing the reasons for that and i think that's that's an important place to start um we may come to speak later about whether scrutiny is enough and and i think possibly uh many of the many of the people here today may well consider that scrutiny in and of itself is is not sufficient um but starting with scrutiny well we took the view that scrutiny of trade deals and scrutiny of treaties was important as we took powers back from the EU because a lot of these arrangements have an effect on everyone's day-to-day life. Um, trade deals can affect the price of goods in shops. It can affect what you have access to. It can affect standards and quality. And all of these things. And these are things that the government gets to decide in terms of the deals that it agrees. And whilst we, as you say, we have a dualist uh, system in in the legal system, which means that in theory, Parliament may get to legislate that later. The legislation often comes about after the deal has been signed. And so it's important to get in at the beginning and see what's happening. Um, we found when we started setting up scrutiny mechanisms that coming down the tracks was a large number of trade deals that were being rolled over from the EU. We looked at 50 plus of those. Um, so our focus there was ensuring that we got the same type of arrangements. The government's promised sort of replication and we wanted to make sure that um, that was exactly what we got. And um, the devil was in the detail, I think, um, talking about how DIT has been doing. I must confess, I was very impressed um, with what they achieved in terms of that rollover programme. I'm very proud about the fact we managed to scrutinise every single one of those agreements. Um, There was one or two uh, where I think that um, they didn't quite uh, get what they were looking for. Holger will no doubt expand on the details of that because he looked at them too. Um, But the main issue I would have with DIT, actually, was simply overclaiming. It got what it said it wanted at the beginning, which was that it managed to roll over trade agreements with 50-plus other states. Um, But a lot of the time when it reported on them, it seemed to be claiming it had done something else entirely. And it was only through the scrutiny that we were able to actually say, no, this is as far as it got. This was a good thing, um, but perhaps these aren't entirely new arrangements that you're boasting about.
0: No, that's, that's an interesting point. And actually, it's sort of, I was going to ask a sort of follow-up, I guess, which you have slightly touched on. But as, as I sort of slightly uh, dramatically said in, in the introduction, you know, if if the government does have a majority in the Commons, then, you know, what, what value does scrutiny have? And I guess that's one question for you, Alex, in your role advising the, the committee and the Lords is your interaction with government. Do you feel like actually going through that process enabled a sort of dialogue around the content of the trade deals and what was sort of helpful? Or did it sometimes feel a bit more more frustrating maybe in in engaging with the government
1: I think we found it a very sort of iterative process. You have to think when we started, there was nothing in place at all. There was uh, a background duty on another House of Lords committee, the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee, to look at treaties. Uh, It was was inundated, really, with um, Brexit SIs. It couldn't do the work. And so suddenly the House of Lords European Union Committee, from a standing start, was told, we have all of these new international agreements to look at. Um, And we assembled a quite a big team and we had very regular meetings with government. Um, They would come to our uh, to our offices in Parliament sort of pretty much every week to tell us uh, what was on the agenda, what was happening. Uh, They would engage with us on the detail. I I have nothing uh, but positive things to say about that, that engagement. Later in the process you see the problems, the, the agreements are signed, they then begin to work their way through the process under the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act and Parliament only really gets a voice in that process a bit too late in the day because once the agreement's been signed, sure Parliament can express a view, we can have a debate, we can do all sorts of things but essentially it's very unlikely that the government is going to go back and say we'd like to now start undoing what we've already agreed with you. Really it's a binary decision are we going to ratify this agreement or are we not and it was quite an easy job with the rollover deals because we already had a text that we could compare it to so we had the tech the eu trade deal and then we had another text which was what the uk had agreed the government provided us with quite good parliamentary reports which set out what it thought the differences were so the scrutiny that was being done was being done with known quantities i think looking forward the issues are that we're dealing with new trade deals with countries with different standards that we may not have dealt with before uh, where unless you get in at the beginning when the government's setting the mandate and we know what's on the table um, dealing with it in the way we have in the past is probably too late Um, and equally stakeholders have to know what's on the table too in order to interact with us. One of the things that we found was that During the crag period, which is the 21 sitting days that the treaties laid before Parliament, it was nigh on impossible to get stakeholders to interact with us because by the time it had been published and we had to get a report out two or three weeks later, that essentially meant that they would have had less than a week to examine what there was, send in a submission, engage with us on the detail. I mean, that's clearly unsustainable. Now, the government have promised in relation to new trade deals that that's not the system we're going to see. And in relation to Australia, for example, they're talking about the signed deal being available for three months consideration, perhaps. And they're obviously putting in the public domain the sorts of things that are under discussion. And everyone knows the issues around agriculture and other things and and can put their their, their views uh, sort of forward. But they also have to know that Parliament has a role. And I think that's the other thing for both the House of Lords and for the International Trade Committee, is to actually get stakeholders to engage with us at an early enough stage so that we know where the, where the problems lie. The very obvious example of, of that is accession to the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, where yeah. the Lords Committee received some concerns around patents um, from various sort of groups that are experts there. You have to think we don't have the largest staff. We're not necessarily familiar with the detail. Um, happily, that agreement is already published. So, again, people who have concerns about it can look at that. I think my concern looking forwards is how much time do stakeholders have with the, with the deal, with the context, to actually get in touch with us and, and tell us uh, what we ought to be looking at.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think you've, you've covered a lot of different issues, I think, that we want to probably unpack over, over the course of this discussion. Um, and I think your, your point about stakeholder engagement, I think, is really interesting. I definitely would be keen to get um, other people's thoughts and particularly Mark's thoughts on that later, um, given his role on the, the Commons International Trade Committee. um, Holger, if I can just come to you next. I mean, I think Alex has sort of alluded to quite a few elements of the system for scrutiny. But if you could sort of paint a, a picture of what we're actually talking about, and in particular, I think it would be interesting to get a sense of where the scrutiny of treaties might differ from the scrutiny of trade agreements and sort of where some of those differences differences come in the process.
2: I think the first thing to say here, oh yes, the the image only just changed, sorry. I think the first thing to say here is uh, to make uh, a distinction between treaties in general and trade agreements, on the international law level. First of all, there is no distinction and there is no clear definition of trade agreement under international law. Uh, And modern trade agreements do usually two things. They have the normal stuff on tariffs that they have to do under gut. There are certain legal requirements. And then they become broader and broader because so many things interact with trade. And they include regulatory areas and resolve regulatory issues, just to name one example, CPTPP, for example, uh, has a rule on patent law that conflicts with current UK patent law, and that is different from the European Patent Convention, which is not an EU treaty, but a treaty that the UK is a party to, and uh, these incompatibilities will have to be dealt with. And of course, the first way to deal with them is to find out that they actually exist. So uh, trade agreements, what distinguishes them from normal agreements is their breadth. They're incredibly intrusive and they can be very intrusive on a country's legal system. And uh, the breadth and intrusiveness usually means that you need more time to truly understand what they actually do. Here, just another absurd example, you have tariff rate quotas that allow the importation of a certain amount of a product at a lower tariff rate, afterwards a higher tariff rate comes in. Uh, You see in the trade agreement how many tonnes of, let's say, beef can be imported at a lower rate, but you need to understand what that means for domestic producers, for importers, for the various interest groups, and you don't see that from the agreement you need to actually speak to stakeholders because there's someone scrutinizing the agreement. As an expert in international law, you know that this rule is there, but you can't say what it means. So how does scrutiny work then? Uh, The legislative background in the UK doesn't distinguish between the two types of agreements. Also, of course, because when it was conceived, trade agreements were EU agreements and were scrutinized under this EU procedure that existed. And they were mixed agreements in addition under the UK procedure. There are two entry points for Parliament. One is when legislation to implement the agreement is passed, then the normal procedures kick in. And the other one is uh, treaty scrutiny under CRAG. Well, normal procedure, of course, you can't really change the legislation at that point. Uh, You have to implement the agreement as it stands. And CRAG, that's the specific treaty scrutiny procedure under the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act. Under that Act, the role of Parliament is somewhat limited. The House of Lords basically can resolve against the treaty once, and then uh, if the government wants to go ahead, it can do so. The House of Commons can resolve against the treaty several times, but in practice can only delay the treaty if the government really wants to go ahead with it. Uh, In exceptional cases, the government can choose to override the whole procedure, but it has to take that decision at the start, not after a resolution in one of the Houses. Uh, That procedure gave Parliament a limited power, and you can see that it was limited in what then happened, basically that no real procedures were put in place for the longest time. Only after Brexit has the procedure really become regularised. First in the Lords, in the EU Committee, and now in the International Agreement Committee, uh, in the commons, there's still not a specific committee, but trade agreements, of course, will go through the trade committee. Uh, in addition to that, we have a number of political commitments. Uh, we have a commitment uh, to, for example, when a, when one of the committee wants a debate, that the government will grant a debate. Uh, we also now, and that is fairly recently, I think that was two weeks ago, uh, that the government said trade agreements would be published quite a long time before they would actually be laid before Parliament and this 21 sitting day treaty scrutiny period kicks in. Now, when you compare these procedures to other countries, it is still quite different. For example, in the US, in Japan, in the EU, parliaments get a vote on the treaty. That does not exist in uh, the UK procedure. Of course, You also have to look at the specifics of the UK constitution, which differs from a lot of other systems in that the majority in parliament, the majority in parliament, I'm very sorry about that. The majority in parliament is the government. So scrutiny in a way is done by the same majority that also is the government. Uh, And so if you want to conceptualize treaty scrutiny in the UK system, the best way to do it is this is a consensual way to improve a treaty Uh, Parliament is the contact point to constituencies, far more so than the government, and they can say what the concerns of constituencies are. So treaty scrutiny is a mechanism to improve the treaty. And there you get to one of the essential problems of the treaty scrutiny procedure. It only starts once the treaty is actually finalized. And so it's very, very hard to have input at that point, because at that point it's about approving the treaty not approving the treaty and you can't really change it easily anymore. And then there are a couple of other weaknesses which I think we'll point out over the rest of the event.
0: Yes definitely and I think um, your your point about when Parliament is actually involved in the process I think is really interesting and I would definitely would like to get Um, get the panel's reflections on actually when we think it makes sense for parliament to to be involved and you know there's obviously some debates about whether or not it's useful to have parliament um, have a vote for example the mandate does that the tie the government's hands too much etc but we can return to that I really wanted actually Mark to come to you next just because you are you're both a member of the International Trade Committee but obviously you were in government for a while um, as well and I think that's really interesting in terms of there's some that you know there is a discussion about the fact that actually you know government cannot be giving a running commentary on trade negotiations and there are some reasons why you want to keep them more private and I wonder whether you feel like the commitments that we that the government have made those political commitments that Holger talked about are they sufficient in terms of guaranteeing Parliament have a role in 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 scrutiny particularly of trade agreements um from the perspective of your committee.
3: I think there are, there are an awful lot of things to to say about this. I, I think one of uh, my first points, actually, is just listening to the previous two speakers, Alex and and, and Holger. Uh, both of whom are clearly unbelievably intelligent and are hugely hugely skilled in this area. But just listening to the last seventeen minutes, even I'm baffled by a lot of what's been talked about. And I think this is one of the fundamental problems that we've got with trying to scrutinise trade deals. And uh, you know, I'm I'm Sort of reflecting back onto the absolutely hideous sort of you know nightmare that we had in trying to get the EU trade deal through Parliament, and the, and the astonishing amount of post-traumatic stress disorder being suffered by the government as a result of all of this. You know, they, they, there's a there's a very different approach to all of this. Um, it's really important. I mean, bear in mind that we have just had this astonishing battle that's been going on with the uh, with the, with getting out of the European Union, in order to so-called take back control and and, and regain sovereignty. And yet here we are going off and signing a whole lot of trade deals around the rest of the world. And every time you sign a trade deal, you cede a little bit of sovereignty to another country. And what amazes me about all of this is that the is actually there's not that much um, engagement by parliament in this whole process. It, it's really, really odd. We've had one debate, which was the Japanese trade deal, where we I think we got five minutes each to, to, to make a debate. And Of course, I just come out of, of having spent a couple of weeks on the International Trade Committee Looking at all of this and really sort of getting stuck into it, and and I was astonished. And this is no, there's not meant to be rude about my colleagues, but I was astonished at the shallowness of the debate that we had when talking about the Japanese trade deal. Um, you know, there are some really really important things that were coming up in that. Although broadly speaking, as we all know, it was it was kind of related to and improved on what was going on with the European Union trade deal. Um, but we're now sort of getting involved into the into the uh, the, the the weeds on the Australian trade deal. And we're beginning to understand how complicated it is. And I'll give you a very simple example. So we're, um, we're literally talking about stakeholders here. We're talking about beef farmers. Um, so suddenly everybody is now getting up in arms about, about what it means for beef being imported into the UK. What, what, what's going on about it? And the starting point is that we're talking about this is if we've never had Australian beef into this country before. And we, we've had it coming into the country for donkey's years. Or uh, hopefully not donkey uh, meat, <laughs> but, we've, uh, but we've been importing this stuff for a long time now, and suddenly everybody is getting upset about animal welfare standards and and whether there's hormone injected into it. Now th- that that last sentence in itself opens two big avenues of debate. So the first is the 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 the, the standard of the meat, the sanitary and phytosanitary standards, which is the kind of is it going to poison you? Is your hair going to turn green if you eat it? And the other is the relative competitiveness between the UK beef farmers and Australian beef farmers who have to uh, observe a different set of animal welfare rules, which, you know, broadly speaking, is seen as very good animal welfare rules, but also reflect the fact it's a very, very different continent. You know, you've got large areas of desert which you need to transport your, your live animals across, which means you can't necessarily unload them every night. And the same with you can in the UK. So you've got these different problems. Now, I'm trying to sort of talk through this whole process and try to get get not only, uh, you know, the kind of wider public, but also parliamentarians to understand is, is really quite tricky. And even on the, on our select committee, you know, we, we're getting better at this because we're learning our trade a bit better as, as we do more of this, but we're still, as I say, learning it. And sometimes you can see that we're making mistakes. Now, bear in mind, you know, I've been a trade minister for a couple of years. And so I've kind of really got into this and even I'm finding it quite challenging. So when you're presented with a trade deal like the Japan trade deal, which was 67 separate documents we were given at a weekend. We had we had I can't remember what it was. It was about 10 days to read through all this sort of this stuff. Actually, it was late, and there was one was an impact assessment. One was 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 a comparison document to the to the Japan deal. One was something else. I can't remember what it was. And the remaining 64 were different chapters on different areas. So the only way we can possibly engage in this is by getting in. Experts on all these areas, which means they've got to have a little bit. Now, actually, they're very good, but we then got to have a whole load of different um, uh, hits uh, sessions going through this uh, in order to understand what the implications of a trade deal is. So, in any practical sense, it's nigh on impossible to really get into it. And I think you know where we are is 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 we are a country that really doesn't know you know collectively and and, and, and instinctively how to. How to understand what a trade deal is? You know, we've got some very, very good people in DIT, and really brilliant people, by the way. And Crawford Faulkner is is kind of running that that department. Really knows what he's talking about. But we've got to get used to this, and it's going to take us a long time just getting used to the idea of how to get uh, of how to scrutinise these trade deals and what it means, and then we can start having a meaningful conversation out of it. But at the moment, I think we're going to be probably, you know, sort of looking at the at the, the brilliant brains on this screen here. I suspect one of the criticisms we're going to have in Parliament is that we're just not getting in there anywhere deep enough to really understand what's going on.
0: I think that's really interesting. I think it's a really good point you make about, you know, this is really, really complex stuff. And as you say, we haven't really had to think about it for a really long time. I mean, one of the things, I'm reflection just while you were talking, and maybe this is something we can come on to. Um, I know Helga, you wanted to come in and I've also got a question for Jill, but I think is about whether actually if you do engage with the sort of negotiating mandate sooner, et cetera, et cetera, does it does it build a bit more? understanding of what it is the government is trying to achieve so that when a, when a text comes back, you're actually a bit more ahead of the game. I mean, I'm also interested in whether three months is even sufficient after what you've said, Mark, whether three months is even sufficient for the Australia deal. Because I think it sounds like there's a lot you've got to get through. Um, Holby, you wanted to come in quickly.
2: Yes, absolutely. Because I, I entirely emphasise with that position uh, and, and entirely agree with it. I think what we need is a parallel debate to the one you just had with the IT. We need capacity building. In parliament because given what trade agreements do if we do not scrutinize them if Parliament is not more integrated in the process eventually there will be a big problem because the UK will be committed to something that MPs quite frankly never really knew and they will only find out afterwards so that's unacceptable uh, and I agree that at the moment there is also a lack of interest, a lack of engagement, the the first thing that gets dumped on you is 1,300 pages of complex legal text that you don't understand by yourself. You need legal experts on your side walking you through the agreement. So what I would advocate for, and I know that this is medium term, uh, is a a process of constant engagement in which Parliament has experts this is of course the way the US does it and also to some extent the, the way the EU does it that can read the documents so that have clearance and of course at that point cannot freely speak about these things but can speak with MPs so that the MPs are on board and that while the deal develops there is a constant process of interchange so that afterwards nobody can claim and feign surprise and at the same time that constituencies are already engaged and can then benefit from the agreement. Right now and I still I also realize that and I think it has to be mentioned a lot of the debate is still screwed because of Brexit because uh, one side has to sell benefits that uh, and, and, and advantages that maybe are not there the other side is constantly engaged in pointing out that there's no difference In reality, what we should debate is the merits of any agreement, who can use it, who cannot use it, and bigging it up and talking it down, both do not help the constituencies because they will be surprised by what's actually in the agreement. So we'll need this constant engagement, capacity building, and then I think it can work. And by the way, similar things happened in other parliaments at the beginning when they were not involved. And similar things will continue to happen. For example, ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, that wasn't in FTAs for a long time, but that have been standalone agreements for decades, went unnoticed by the public until suddenly the EU wanted to include that bit in a free trade agreement with the US and the public exploded much to the surprise of every expert involved saying, well, we've been doing this for decades. Why now? And then the, Uh, the Parliament of uh, the balloons came out against it and I think uh, constant engagement is the way to go to prevent similar surprises and also to improve the end product.
0: Uh, That's interesting. I think what you're saying, Holger, in terms of you know, Parliament being a bit a conduit for actually the public engagement and public to understand what, what is actually going on and, and to, to be more aware of what agreements are being struck, I think is really important. Um, but Jill, sorry, I haven't come to you sooner. So you've been sitting very patiently. And I, one of the things that I, th- I would be really interested in your perspective on because of your former role in the Foreign Office is, Obviously, the big thing that's become very hot topic um, has been trade agreements and scrutiny of trade deals. And that's obviously, and and, I mean, Holger's already talked about the fact that trade agreements are so wide ranging. And that's part of the reason why we are so concerned about them. and We're focusing on them so much. Um, as, As again, Holger sort of mentioned, we have the government has made some political commitments around scrutiny or trade deals, for example, the Australia deal having three months before they'll ratify. Um, do you think that there should be more done on treaties or do you think they are different things? Not. I mean, I know Holger explained to us that legally, international, they're not. But in terms of their political salience and, and sort of how, how concerned we should be about what the government is doing and, and how Parliament should scrutinise that?
4: Um, yes. Hello, uh, Matty. Well, of course, uh, trade agreements, are treaties... Um, But what you're asking is, what about all the other treaties on other subjects that could range from, you know, nuclear arms, human rights to quite technical things like road signs? Um, And I think that's the problem. Yes, in principle, the the principles of transparency should apply across the board. um, But it's quite difficult, I think, for the government to give a commitment in advance to specific transparency measures on every single treaty, particularly uh, during the process of negotiation, when the subject matter could cover absolutely anything um, and it could cover quite sensitive matters to do with security, for example. And the other um, I think difficulty at a more mundane level is that very often, if, if you're, say you're engaged, uh, a diplomat's engaged in, Um, discussions with their opposite numbers in another country they could be talking about a whole range of subjects at the same time on a bilateral basis and you're trying to advance you know your relations in different areas and you may not know um, initially which areas you actually want to have a treaty in you know, you want to have deals, you want to agree things and you want to do things together, but you don't necessarily need a treaty. You might end up with a non-binding instrument of some kind or or something less formal. Um, and you don't know at the outset necessarily what your aim is, um, particularly when policy officials do these negotiations without consulting their lawyers at the beginning. They may not have a clear idea of what their what, what legal form their end product may take. Um and, of course, the other thing is that the other country in a bilateral situation actually may have a different assumption about what the end product's going to be. So, um, you know, deciding at what point you should report to Parliament that you are now negotiating a treaty could be quite a difficult one. So I think it's hard to lay down um, very specific criteria that would apply across the board for transparency in all treaty negotiations. Um, what I think would be a good idea would be for Parliamentary Treaty Committee, certainly the House of Lords Treaty Committee. And then I would hope that there would be a similar development in the House of Commons for treaties across the board, that they would have some kind of a framework agreement with the government that sets out the principles of transparency and flow of information and what the expectations are. Uh, and the government should then explain when it's not able to deliver on those, and what sort of reason it is for that.
0: Yeah, I think I know. I think that's really interesting, and I think your your point about the fact that it's you know with with a trade agreement you do have a sort of mandate, and there's a clear process, and actually you know that there is you're trying to achieve something at the end. Whereas in other treaties, other agreements, um, in other areas of you know cooperation information sharing, all of those sorts of things, actually. It, it's not quite as straightforward as that. I think that's really interesting. I will come to you, Alex, in a moment. But, Mark, I think you were disagreeing maybe on the idea of a treaty committee in the Commons. And I'd be interested to, to hear why. Uh,
3: you're absolutely right. So, so we have a slightly different sort of setup than than there is in the House of Lords, where the House of Lords can tend to sort of set up their own committees. But obviously, within the Commons, we have select committees that are specifically there for uh, to look at um, the, the work of individual departments. So, so this is why the International Trade Committee looks specifically at this, uh, the, the, these um, uh, free trade agreements. And, and something which I suppose is relevant to this is another committee I sat on before, which is the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. And that was a special committee that was set up in order to look at a specific area. But I think there would be a massive uh, turf war if there was a, any suggestion that they would sort of start setting up another committee that would take away the work of the international trade committee, because basically there wouldn't be anything really left for us to do. So, mm-hmm. so, so I think what we need to do is resource better the mm-hmm. international trade committee. Just, just one sort of very quick point on the on the negotiating mandate. What I suspect will happen, just quickly on that, is that um, as each trade deal goes through, uh, they'll establish a sort of precedent of what of what look what a what a mandate would look like. So, as we do the sort of the Australian deal, we get to the end of that, we kind of see what that looked like. So therefore, there would be an expectation that as you go into a new trade deal um, that you would then coming out of you know, it, would, it would look broadly similar to that. And where there would be a big argument is if, if anything goes sort of massively away from that precedent that's been set by previous trade deals. So oh, that's
0: really interesting. Jill, did you want to come back quickly and then I'll come to
4: Alex? Um, no, I absolutely understand what Mark's saying about the important role of the subject matter select committees. And clearly um, to study scrutinise the substance of a trade agreement effectively you've got to develop an expertise on it as his committee has so I absolutely agree with that and I I wouldn't be suggesting that that role should be taken away but what I think is missing is um, a more horizontal looking treaty committee in the Commons that would pick up on the more institutional issues perhaps at a sifting level you know when a treaty is first laid or or the document first comes in at a sifting level that's looking more horizontally at things like, you know, um, is the EM that's been laid with it? Does it have enough information? Does it conform to the standards that the the parliament has said it expects of an EM? If not, go straight back to the government and say, we need you to improve this EM, please. Um, You know, what else? Um, The... Capacity of this treaty for um, making amendments, you know, what's the amendment mechanism under this treaty and could it allow for amendments to be made to the treaty in future that wouldn't be subject to the CRAG scrutiny process? And if so, what can we do about that? Um, you know, there's a whole range of horizontal institutional issues. What, would be, what, what about the duration of the treaty and how you might withdraw from it? which um, really needs expertise across treaties across the board. Mm -hmm. And I think probably a committee that's very focused on the detail of trade is is likely to miss those more institutional or legal or cross-cutting matters. So I wonder if there isn't scope for some sort of a treaties sifting committee that certainly doesn't take over the job of the subject matter committee looking Mm
0: -hmm. at substance, but maybe points things out to it that it perhaps ought to have a look at. That's really interesting. And I think, again, the sort of the question of complementary work between different committees in the Commons is is quite an interesting one. And actually, this is where, Alex, I know that you wanted to come in anyway. But one of the things I think is is an interesting thing to discuss is actually then how the House of Lords possibly does try and maybe pick up some of those cross-cutting issues by having this broad international agreements committee. And whether that can sort of complement and does complement the work that the, the, the International Trade Committee and the Commons can do specifically on trade agreements.
1: Sure, I'm I'm happy to talk about that. I had a couple of points to make on transparency, but let's start with Jill's point first. I do think that um, what we have at the moment in the Lords is essentially a committee that's doing that work. And I think that there's a risk that if you try and duplicate that in the Commons, you'll essentially be doing the same work in two places. I think What's really needed is, is is a mechanism by which we can mainstream the work of, of the committee that's already existing in the Lords on the sorts of issues that Gill has raised, which are all very important. Uh, we already have criteria that look at things like the quality of EMs, the consultation with the devolved nations. Uh, We're very aware and pick up quite regularly the amendment-related provisions. Um, So I think that information is already in Parliament. And the question is how we get those reports, those treaties that we draw to the special attention of the House of Lords, also to the attention of the departmental select committees that may have an interest. And I think that's really an internal matter for Parliament to try and work out between the two Houses Uh, as to how to make better use of of the work that we've got it works with joint committees so the Mm. two houses can work together in that capacity i see no reason why much in the way that many members in the commons make use of the work of the constitution committee uh, in relation to constitution issues they can't make work use of the work of the international agreements committee on sort of cross-cutting matters where departmental committees in the commons have an interest and i hope that that might be a useful way forward On the question briefly of transparency that you raised, Maddie, I think uh, a few sort of questions ago. I think uh, before Brexit, there were about 30 treaties, give or take, going through Parliament each year. And these just appeared they weren't really looked at very much. Um, Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee started its work in about 2014-15. I don't think it drew any treaties to the special attention of the House. But have in mind, as Jill's mentioned, you know, some of the things that we're talking about that aren't trade are still very important. They impact on individuals' rights. People don't know what they are. Take the UK-US extradition agreements and the case of Gary McKinnon from, you know, many years ago. Suddenly it became apparent that we didn't precisely know what standard and burden of proof was involved in extraditing people to the US. And we've had quite a lot of cases about that because that agreement was never adequately scrutinised. And I think there are lots of agreements that involve the rights of individuals that are just as important, perhaps to a smaller number of people, but nonetheless, um, you know, very significant that Parliament should want to look at. And I mean, in a practical sense, I think Jill is right that that we can't intervene while while negotiations are still happening in all of these deals. But certainly I've been surprised that DIT are quite happy to tell us, for example, that we have an agreement in principle with the Australians, more or less what it's about. But we've yet to actually get ourselves in that position on non-trade agreements. And I do think it's fair to say that... It wouldn't be beyond FCDO to notify Parliament once an agreement in principle has been reached on these more significant um, deals that do impact individuals or do have significant financial implications um, or whatever else. I'm sure we could come up with a list of criteria. The other thing on transparency is that we do have to be aware just quite how bad we can sometimes be. Holger's already pointed out in the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act, there's an exceptional circumstances provision that means that everything can be sidestepped. But have a look at what we did with the EU deal. This was a trade deal. It's the biggest trade deal that this country is going to enter into in decades. The only comparable trade deal would be one with the US, I imagine. And yet that appeared, the crag process was actually eliminated in the statute that introduced this arrangement. And we had a comparative setup where we were essentially told that we were more or less ratifying the agreement overnight by passing the domestic legislation. Hmm. We then sat on the agreement for three months with Parliament having done its job, having considered the agreement for pretty much 24 hours, it only having been published a week earlier. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the European Parliament sat with it for three months and they asked for provisional application, which essentially means that legally the deal went ahead as though it was in force, but they weren 't committed to it they hadn 't ratified it. they looked at it for three months, their various committees reported on it. Mm-hmm. And we all just sort of went ahead with this on the, on this sort of slightly false sense of urgency that said, "Oh well, because brexit ends on the thirty first December, uh, we need to sign this sort of overnight um, and part of this I suspect, is because there isn 't the experience in the u k parliament to say, "Hang on a sec, um, you know if we 're provisionally applying this agreement what 's the rush? why couldn 't we look at this for three months But that's just to note that the precedents you know, in terms of what the government can do, aren't good. And if we don't put the structures in place to actually say, hold on a sec, um, you know, when these things happen, we want some checks and balances here. We want some ability to come in and say, you know, we don't actually know the detail of what's going on. Can we provisionally apply it? Can it be, you know, dealt with slightly more slowly? What's the urgency? Um, you know, you can get swept away quite quickly.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a very good point. And I mean, you made a few interesting points, I think, about the sort of, what commitments you might be able to try and get out of the Foreign Office, but but I think yeah, on the UK you traded. I think actually it was passed less or about. I think I mean just under a week after it was first because it was first published on the twenty sixth of December, and I think it went through on the thirtieth of December. So That's I right. think. From from my recollection of the Christmas period, um, it wasn't it was very fast. But but then again, this obviously was a very politically contentious issue, and we are seeing that obviously with the Australia FTA, for example, the UK government isn't following that same precedent. And I think it's a really, I mean, Holger's already talked about that how it's very difficult to separate this out at the moment from the sort of very highly political debate around Brexit and actually can we move beyond that and, t- and sort of look at the next set of agreements what precedents can we set there I think is really important Now, there's one question that's come through that Holger I was going to put to you um, from Jeff Bo um, Bocock from the Growth Company, Manchester, and basically he's asking: Look, there are lots of things in any deal that you need to look at, but what are the key elements of a trade deal that sort of business organisations, um, businesses should look at when they're when they're when they're sort of trying to understand what's going on? And I guess that's quite a useful question, possibly for the International Trade Committee to also consider. But Holger, do you can you give us your top sort of three elements that we should be looking out for?
2: It is a great question. The problem is there is no great answer because the reality of trade deals is uh, you have roughly 30 chapters and every business will find a different chapter, really, really important. Of course, the number of chapters is also differs from agreement to agreement. So a digital company will find any chapter on digital trade really, really fascinating, whereas the farming sector says, you know, who cares? What is the tariff? And what is the tariff rate quota on beef? In the, the reality when you read these agreements is as a trade lawyer, there are provisions that you go through and you're like, okay, this is like the WTO, reproducing, reproducing. This is basically the country locking in standard. It's the standard all already has. So, for example, Japan in the UK deal has changed the term of protection for a particular IP right. They did that because they had changed their internal legislation. So now they could offer what was already the UK and the EU standard. Uh, that's great, but doesn't change anything for anyone uh, involved. And you go through these sort of things and then you can say, well, this will be of interest to this industry and this looks different. But you can't say it before what will be of interest. There can be surprising things. So services industries, I can say that from the top of the head, will be interested in movement of people, will be interested in professional qualifications and recognition of those qualifications, whereas goods industries continue to be interested in tariffs and standards uh, and in processes of recognition of standards. Uh, but everything else is so indus- industry dependent and and every industry has different interests that it's difficult to say and some trade agreements come with really interesting novel provisions so for example the norway agreement uh, has provisions on roaming clearly taken from the fact that there are no roaming fees in the eu and eea and trying to carry that benefit over that's really interesting and it's done in a different way but it's not a provision that anyone has ever seen in a normal trade agreement because that's internal EU law that was then tried to be carried over in a different way. And as an expert, you can't say beforehand what will hit you unless, and that's why why I say this is so important, unless you have this sort of constant engagement where a parliamentary expert with clearance knows what's being discussed and the government has the trust and confidence to talk to that person and doesn't feel that when they say something, two days later it will be in the press and then they will be locked into the process and can't step away from it if it turns out to be unviable in the negotiation. That's why this constant engagement is really important for efficient scrutiny uh, over time and also stakeholder engagement so that both stakeholders sort of have an idea where the government is going and the government has a good idea what is good for stakeholders and what is bad for them and which trade-offs they have to make.
0: Yeah, definitely. Actually, the session we had earlier, there was quite a lot of praise actually for how DIT engages the stakeholders, which is definitely positive from what you're saying. But a shame not to get just a top three thing to look for. I think it's a a really good reminder again of how complex these agreements are and how how they will impact um, different businesses so differently. Mark, you wanted to come in on that, I think.
3: Well, just, just really to make a kind of very simple point. I mean, the the, the simplest thing to understand in a trade deal is things like tariffs, uh, where where it kind of makes sense. You've got a product that's going across, and how much is going to cost, and what's that going to do to prices in the in, in the market. The most contentious is going to be the foodstuffs uh, and and, and this you know, sanitary and phytosanitary and all the rest of it. But the most important, the single most important, is services, because you know eighty percent of our economy is driven by services, and and this is the bit which people don't really understand because. you know, Trade in services is still not that well defined and that well covered in, in terms of these trade deals. And yet for the UK, it's massively, massively the most important thing we can talk about. And Holger is absolutely right. This is about movement of people. It's about recognition of uh, qualifications. Um, but it's also about data. Um, so, the, so the setting of data overseas. And again, that's something else, which which you know, the, the, this whole concept of exporting of data and, and, and trade in data doesn't necessarily, you know, people haven't quite got their head around that yet. I mean, although the lawyers have, but actually, conceptually, the people who are going to be using it don't necessarily understand it. So the most important thing, though, is services and data.
0: I think that's really interesting. Oh, I think Jen and Holgo both want to come in. But first, very briefly, Mark, I just want to come back to you, actually, because one of the things we were, again, talking about earlier – Um, on the DIT obviously the Department of International Trade doesn't just do trade deals it's also about um, sort of uh, export promotion and looking at sort of um, promoting investment as well and I wonder how from your perspective scrutinizing sort of the department as a whole not just on trade negotiations how you as the committee try and balance that because as I say it's sort of there are other things going on and, and and you know some of the the sort of I think Liz Truss is sort of the the thing she's looking for from the US for example it's not about a trade agreement but it's about sort of promoting and providing um, more access for I think it's lamb exports is what she's interested in so I wonder how, how whether you feel like the moment you're focusing very much on trade deals or whether you you as a committee can sort of look a bit more across the board as well and then Holger and Jill I'll come to you Uh, Yes, so
3: so, so we do look more across the board. Uh, And and actually, it's probably worth mentioning that three of us on the International Trade Committee are also Prime Minister's trade envoys. So we have um, uh, Mark Menzies, who does Latin America, I do uh, a third of ASEAN, and and one of my other colleagues, Martin Vickers, does um, some Central European countries. Uh, So we get to see it actually both from a scrutiny point of view and from a practitioner's point of view. So we have these sort of quasi-government jobs. Um, Look, it, it is incredibly important that we are looking at all the other stuff. I mean, you know, we are... Uh, at any given time, you know, particularly, in, say for example, in Thailand, we're looking for market access for for, for Scotch whisky. Um, it's difficult for the Scotch whisky industry because it has to be bottled in Scotland, and therefore you can't bring it over as a as a as a concentrate and then you know add alcohol to it, which is a lot of, which is the, what their competitors do. So market access is very very important. Also, this, this this business of trying to get investment into the UK and also supporting businesses invest overseas, and this is a major change from from what the situation was prior to the starting of DIT, because actually it was frowned upon supporting businesses making uh, investments overseas, but actually we took the view that it was promoting exports and therefore your current account would benefit because of the, of the repatriation of, uh, of, of dividends back to the UK. But, but foreign direct investment really, really important, and I see Biz Trust is doing quite well on this at the moment with, some, with uh, a lot of US companies looking to, to invest more money into the UK. By the way, this is doubly important, because this Foreign direct investment into the UK is, I think, by far and away, the most important vote of confidence in the UK economy post-Brexit. And if we were to see a massive drop off of that, then that would be very, very problematic, I think, for, for our, our you know, position in the world. And actually, to that extent, DIT has got an incredibly important job uh, making sure that we are scoring well on that foreign direct investment. And yes, absolutely, when it comes to the uh, International Trade Committee, you know, clearly we're looking at that. We're also scrutinising things like the, the reduction of funding in the Trade Show Access Programme. Uh, we're looking at the, the, the funding of um, British Chambers of Commerce around the world I and mean, a whole load of different things which we are we're regularly getting stuck into. So it isn't just trade deals. I suspect we should probably meet more than once a week.
0: <laughs> there's a lot. Yes, there's definitely a lot to be getting stuck into. Um, Jill, I'll come to you first and then and then back to you. Um, thank you. Well, I, I
4: wanted to pick up on... Um, Holger was describing a process um, of uh, engagement with stakeholders via parliamentarians, via government giving uh, information about an agreement during negotiation in confidence, I think, to members of the committee and then those parliamentarians talking in confidence to stakeholders to give them a heads up on what kind of things they should be following um, and I wanted to ask Mark, um, as you have both a parliament, parliamentary and a quasi-government role, how's it working? I mean, are, are you are you getting um, confidential briefings from DIT um, before agreements are signed, and do you feel that you're getting more information through that confidential mechanism than you would get through the open process? And if you are are you able to engage um, in your public facing role with your stakeholders and constituents to give them a heads up that's meaningful for them without actually breaching the confidentiality? Because I can see the problem. You know, if you're effectively keeping your stakeholders informed and government knows that, then government might be suspicious that this process is going to be a bit leaky and therefore not actually give you any information that's any more than they would have given to you in public. So, you know, I, I just like your perspective on both sides as to how it's working.
3: Well, Joel, it's a really, really important question. The, the answer to the question about whether DIT are giving us the the real sort of nuts and bolts is I uh, quite manifestly know. Uh, because at the end of the day there's a whole lot of very secret stuff. And so I've certainly put it forward that that, that in exactly the same way that the Security Intelligence Committee uh, meets under Privy Council terms, there should be elements of the International Trade Committee that also meets under Privy Council terms, where we can actually have a, a proper, full and frank and open discussion about, about what's going on um, within uh, within these trade deals. By doing that, you can then differentiate quite freely between what is privy council and therefore absolutely not allowed to be talked about in public and what is the type of thing where we can engage with stakeholders um you know, particularly the sort of people like the nfu and all the rest of it uh where we then can have a proper conversation an open conversation but at the moment we i, I don't think we're getting anywhere near the, the the details of what we need to um so i think yeah i, I think there's a lot more that could be done and, and privy council terms i think is the answer to that
4: and you're saying that at present you've asked for some sort of arrangement on privy council terms, and, and so far government has said no.
3: Um, I think it's fair to say they haven't answered. Actually, <laughs> it's one of those things we raise it, they walk away, and you never hear from them ever again. Uh, which I think is, a, is is another way of saying no. But it's um, uh, I, I, I think we probably ought to be pressing them actually, and yeah. it's something I wanted to bring up with Angus again, who's the chairman of the uh, Angus Brennan. Neil is uh, the chairman of the committee.
0: That's no. It's really interesting to hear that. Um, and, and actually, I think I'll, I'll let Holger come in. But I think the sort of for the last few minutes, I would be quite interested to sort of get all of your reflections on if you do want to try and in, implement sort of improvements to this process. Can can Parliament sort of do that, or do we need government to get very much behind that? Um, Holger, you wanted to come in though. Um, I think on something Marcus said earlier.
2: Yeah, I uh, I wanted to point out that. that because sometimes you, you see all of the information in, in public and as a non-expert, you look at it and you say, well, what's the problem with that? It, there's a lot of information out there. The reality is that, for example, when we take trade in data, every government in the Western world will say, we will protect personal data and we will support free data flows, which sounds fantastic and of course promises everything and the opposite. And th- the reality, For trade, the really difficult point is to find the right balance and to favor the right balance. And uh, for the UK, in addition, there's the equivalency decision with the EU hanging in the background and the question, to what extent can that be stretched and where is their liberty and where isn't. And that is very much the case for almost all trade policy. The devil is in the detail. The same is true. For food standards and SPS, you will have the emphasis on science that every government always does and also our particular processes will be protected. But you can only know when you see uh, the text. And uh, so I do think uh, that this is uh, where change will have to happen if we want to integrate parliament more. And I don't. Given the constitutional setup of the UK, uh, it is unlikely in the current with the current majorities that Parliament will pleasure the government to do anything. Uh, because Parliament is the government to some extent. Uh, and so I, I think that what we need to do is convince the government and say this is a good idea, because these agreements will be around for a long time. We will have to make them work for the country. And for the constituencies. And if the constituencies end up being surprised, your constituencies, that will harm your political standing. And so don't allow them to be surprised. Work on the processes that the constituencies have an idea where this is going and that the end result is in the interest, really, of the whole country.
0: Uh, No, That's really interesting. I know, Alex, you wanted to come in, but I am really keen to sort of get into what Holger's just been talking about in terms of how do you actually try and... Uh, make change happen within the scrutiny arrangements um, that we currently have but Alex I'll, I'll come to you now and then I'll, I'll come to the rest of the panel. There's also um, Arabella Lang just asked an interesting question that I might also put to Mark as well um, in the last few minutes but Alex I'll come to you now.
1: Actually I'll take on the question that you've just raised because I think that it probably uh, ties in. I'll make three points sort of briefly. Um, how do we make things better? Um, well one of the problems is that whilst I have a great deal of respect for what DIT have done, and i wouldn 't want to disparage it there isn 't a tendency to sort of slightly overclaim things and one of the things thats overclaimed is that we have a sort of best in class scrutiny arrangement and that 's simply not true when we were setting up the uh, system in the lords I was I was very heavily involved in this because I moved from the EU committee to the International Agreements Committee and we set up the standards as to what we would look at and how it would work. And We did it within the constraints of a staffing model, uh, which is not large, and we did it with reference to Westminster Systems because we were acting within the constraints of the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act. And the statute doesn't really facilitate treaty scrutiny. It does nothing to facilitate scrutiny. It merely provides that the government have to lay an EM, once it's signed, an explanatory memorandum saying what it is, uh, and the signed document. But prior to that, the, 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 the legislation is doing nothing to help. Now, is it best in class? No, none of the Westminster systems are best in class. Where you look for best in class is probably the European Parliament, Congress, to other places. The Westminster systems seem to be predicated on the idea that because parliaments have to legislate, that's where they get their opportunity to become involved. But that overlooks the fact that Holger's already made that that's too late in the process because the agreement has been made. I think we need to convince government that transparency is in their interest. And one way of doing that is to essentially say that there are some things in the negotiation that Parliament might wear. And therefore, you can use Parliament as part of the negotiating process. So be it sort of agricultural standards or something else, once you actually say... Okay, um, you know, if this is on the table and we're discussing it at the mandate stage and we have to put this mandate to our parliament, what will the parliament wear? And there are some things that it won't. And the US understands this and you see this um, used. And, you know, we've been told this by diplomats that this is quite a clever way of negotiating, which we don't seem to do yet. And nobody's really explained, you know, what the danger is in doing that. That's not negotiating the entire thing in public, but it's at least, you know, having a, a general idea about what it is you're negotiating about i think if we tried to address that and we tried to address you know why we're trying to do so much in secret whereas other um other institutions don't we might actually put the process on a slightly firmer foundation
0: Uh, i think that's a really interesting and important point actually in terms of using parliament um, as part of the negotiations to actually say i mean we see that with the eu as well they don't just do it with the european parliament but they do it with the european uh, with individual member states as well Of actually if you've got more parties to the to the negotiation it's harder to be as flexible so you sort of it is i think it is a negotiating hand that maybe the government should be should be uh, more interested in playing i mean the final question as i said mark i wanted to actually come to you just very briefly on this question from arabella which is just about given and i think i'm interested in how the international trade committee sort of handles that in the commons is that you know these trade deals are incredibly broad and they do cover such different areas sort of she's talked about environmental protection transport free movement human rights but, you know, and I think there's a question there about how DIT works, other departments who then lead on these areas um, in, within negotiations. But then from a scrutiny perspective, does the International Trade Committee sort of work with, um, with other committees who actually might have a sort of better grasp on some of these issues that they can feed in? And particularly, I guess, at the official level, but also at the political level. I mean, is there a sort of attempt to to bring in different departmental select committees where relevant to the scrutiny? Or is that something that's sort of still an iteration, I guess?
3: Uh, no, we 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 do bring in people. So, um, um, Par- uh, God, uh, Parish uh, Neil Parish from the um, DEFRA Committee comes in, and he joins in some of our uh, our inquiries on on the, on the, on the um, free trade agreements we're going through. But it's um, and they're going to come out. i to a certain extent, there's probably a bigger role though, because I think at the moment what we're doing is we're inviting other people into our committee on certain areas, but actually I suspect that. Um, you know, when you're looking at, say, for example, data, I mean, I think that there's a very good reason why the um, uh, DCMS committee should probably have a look at data and, why, and and they could probably have their own inquiries. So I think it's, um, so, so, so I think it's a greater role, although we, we are sort of starting to do that. But look, just in the last sort of final sort of couple of minutes, I know we're about to run what up. So to, to just a sort of couple of couple of very, very quick points is my last final words. Um, the first, I think, is that the... One of the problems we've got to work out on all of this is this whole balance of consumer choice versus versus protectionism, and 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 this is a very very difficult area. We're talking about the beef and we're talking about all this SPS stuff and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you know, I presented this question to uh, to the NFU when they came in front of us, and you know, it is how how is what they're proposing in terms of protection, protectionism any different from the corn laws? To which the answer, and this is on record, uh, was that nobody's dying this time round. But it's um. Which I do not think was a particularly strong ar- answer, to be honest with you. But the bottom line is, is that is that actually, ultimately, with this wretched chlorinated chicken business, the fact is there are an awful lot of people who would like to get Kentucky Fried Chicken that actually came from Kentucky, because it's cheaper and because you know it, it isn't going to kill you. So con- consumer choice versus protectionism, I think, is something which we need to really understand more. And the second point is, is that a um, is that a, a Crawford Faulkner when I was working with him came along and gave me some very good advice about how to analyse trade deals. And he said, and I hope you don't mind my slightly exotic language, he said, you only know that you've got a good trade deal when both sides are equally pissed off. And both sides have got to concede the same amount. If one side is happy, the other side has really, really messed up. So it's about balance of, of, of misery.
0: Um, Well, those are some very good final remarks. Actually, they link very nicely to the event that we're going to be holding in an hour um, looking at the UK's trade policy, because I think you're right. There is clearly this bigger question about what we are trying to achieve with our trade sort of trade policy, what what the UK government's key aims are. And actually, it's very difficult to analyse the detail of what they're doing if you're not quite sure what it is they're trying to achieve in the first place. So I think that is what we will be discussing um, very shortly. Um, I think what I will say is thank you very much to the to the whole panel. I know we covered a lot of ground. Um, I think that there are some really interesting suggestions in there about how to try and improve um, parliamentary scrutiny and I think the, the key point um, that Alex made about we need to make government, I think Holger you said it too, we need to make government recognise the value of scrutiny and actually that's going to be the key thing if we're going to try and improve scrutiny and this is definitely not going to be the last word we, we say on this. Um, so thank you very much all of you for coming, thank you everyone for listening. Please do join us again in an hour for our final event um, on Trade Day marking five years from the Department for International Trade.
2: Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.